Hey, Helicopter Podcast listeners, this is John Gray from the Hangar Z Podcast. I want to let you all know Vertical Fowler's Spring 2024 issue is now available. In our Spring 2024 issue, we head over to Leon County for a look at how law enforcement agencies in Northern Florida are combining forces to enhance crime fighting. We also visit Metro Aviation in Shreveport, Louisiana to learn about the work behind installing a Metro interior in an Airbus helicopter. We connect with the experts in the search and rescue sector for an update on the latest trends, training, and tools using helicopter rescue missions. And finally, we catch up with the Los Angeles Police Department's Aviation Unit for a look at its training programs. All this, plus highlights of some new products and services that made their debuts at Heli Expo 2024. To check out the latest issue of Vertical Valor, go to verticalvalor.com and scroll to the bottom of the page to find magazines. Enjoy. All right. What is up, guys? It's Halsey Schreider with the Helicopter Podcast. And myself and my team have been perusing the interwebs of social media, specifically Instagram. And we came across today's guest, Brad Isaacs, on Instagram. Brad, what's up, man? Do you have like 25,000 followers or something? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, uh, there was one video of some, it was actually an MD500 startup video that went pretty good. And a bunch of people showed up after that one. So <laughs> it's so. so funny. Uh, before we dive too deep into it, a special thanks to our partners at Vertical Helicasts and, of course, our sponsors at Bell Helicopter. And Celicopter, if you haven't checked out Vertical Helicast platform yet, I certainly recommend that you do. It's home to not just the Helicopter podcast, but also the Hangar Z and the Real Rescue, both uh, kind of industry-specific podcasts, but different than mine. Uh, and so a uh, very well-rounded platform on Vertical Helicast. Make sure that you check it out. And again, Mr. Brad, welcome to the show. Yeah, that's cool. Like, um, you, you obviously... Uh, weren't setting out to, you know, become Insta famous, but uh, here we are now. When did you post that video? What were you doing in the video? Uh, I think everybody just likes turbine startup noises. So yeah, it was just a little <laughs> compilation of, uh, you know, just the different switches you push and, <laughs> and yeah, it, it started growing from there, but yeah. Tick, 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 boom. Yeah. Yep. No, it's, it's, I love that sound. In fact, for the longest time, that was my ringtone. I think we've all been there, right? Yeah. So yeah. I like held my phone out when I was starting a jet ranger one time or, or my yeah. buddy was starting and had yeah. that noise. And uh, actually our producer, Zach, uh, who's maybe on Zach. Yeah. Zach is on. Um, he can't talk, so we can say whatever we want about him, but he actually still has the turban uh, nice. ring ringtone. So uh, that is a good sound. There is something pretty magical about that sound. So it's uh that's pretty funny. Is, is, do people like reach out to you? Like when you have 25,000 followers, I mean, that's quite a bit. Are, are you getting hit up all the time or is it pretty? pretty yeah, quite a, uh, doing the utility stuff, the power line construction stuff is pretty kind of a niche. So I definitely have a lot of people interested in, you know, the pathway to get into doing that. Um, so that's probably where most of the, the conversations go. And then it's how you yeah. get started, which I'm sure is every, every Instagram, <laughs> you know, person that's posting a decent amount. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm, yeah, definitely curious to learn more about what you're doing and what that world's like. That's pretty much an opposite world of, of flying that I've been in. Uh, sure. So, you know, I'm really excited to talk about that, but I kind of wanted to start a little bit before that. And it, reading through your email here, it looks like you started law enforcement. So were you law enforcement on the ground and then was in the air unit? How did, how did that all work? And Kind of what drove you to want to be a helicopter pilot and was it because of maybe the law enforcement route yeah so uh back in 2008 2009 i was operating heavy equipment for a construction company and uh just wanted to do something 
do something different. And uh, I don't even know if it was YouTube back then, but, you know, just started watching videos of different helicopter stuff. And uh, me and my dad started talking about it and we ended up going and doing a uh, discovery flight together. And, uh, you know, after that, I was hooked. Um, and then trying We're to yeah, sinker exactly every time. flying, you know, yeah, uh, those, in, the, in, the flight schools, the flight schools have a, um, they're pretty good at that. Right. It's like, yeah. uh, Hey, come let's go. Like for us in Portland, it was like, Hey, we're going to go land on this building downtown Portland. Yep. You get back and they're like, here's the paperwork that you need to sign for the Sally yeah. May loan. Super easy. Great <laughs> rates. Just yeah. sign right here. Yeah. <laughs> like on they, that flight, cruising up the cruising up a low level up the river and stuff. And, you know, 20 feet, 20 feet off the water and yeah, down below the trees. And, yeah. yeah it was, they it definitely was cool. know how to, they know how to, they know how to sell it for sure. So that's, yeah. is your dad a pilot now too, or did, did he not continue? So he didn't continue with it. He had some medical things and then just, uh, he, he, I think he realized that he'd rather just kind of ride along with me, you know, get Nothing me. Wrong with that. Yeah. They, they helped me a lot getting me through all that. So, um, that's cool. But yeah, after that, then just started looking at the different ways that you could get a job flying. And uh, law enforcement had always been something that I'd considered doing prior to thinking about flying. And uh, once I realized there was a way to, you know, potentially get to fly for a police department, um, I started researching departments in the area that had aviation units. And uh, there was one right across from where I started doing my training at. Um, so applied there with the hopes of, you know, getting on full time to fly for them eventually. But there were, yeah, there's no guarantee. Um, be like, you know, joining the military was kind of the other option. So it's, you know, it's kind of a life commitment versus a, uh, you know, a financial commitment. I would kind of. So did you, did you go into the law enforcement with any pilot experience or were you banking on them maybe providing that experience? So I got my private rating at the same time that I got hired on there. So I had, you know, that kind of, you know, obviously I couldn't get paid to fly, but I, you know, I had the aptitude to be able to do it. And so it definitely put me ahead of uh, other people that didn't have that. Um, but it still took me about four years of doing regular patrol work to be able to get accepted to the aviation unit full time. Yeah, that's crazy. I remember I was living in Austin, Texas. Um, and, you know, I would see their police helicopters fly over. I did a ride along actually with a buddy of mine. It was a hoot, man. We had a good time. Yeah. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was like a, like less like a professional cop and more like a cop that you saw like super troopers, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know if he was just showing off for, for me, his buddy, <laughs> but, uh, I kind of felt like, oh my God, you can do whatever you want. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we had a good time. Um, you know, he's, uh, he gave me a good experience actually too, kind of sidebar that same cop. I had him uh, fake arrest my buddy on a bachelor party one time, nice. um, which was awesome. So that's a yeah. that's maybe a story for a different podcast. But um, long story short, I was after doing that ride along, I was like, man, that would be awesome. And so I started looking into it, going through the application process, talking to the people at the air unit, and that was kind of the thing at that point. I mean, I had a thousand plus hours flight experience. And they're like, yeah, you could be a cop, but you know, you're probably gonna have to do the ground for you know four or five, yeah. maybe even longer, before you get into the air unit. And so for me, I was just like, oh man, that seems that seems counterproductive from to where I'm already at. Like, yeah, for sure, I could just probably go and get another flying job, build time, and do something else. So I kind of foregoed my my path, but it kind of would have been fun. 
Did you enjoy doing the the law enforcement on the ground? I mean, I know it's not the the law enforcement podcast, but I'm always kind of curious just to hear what that experience is like. Yeah, it was good. Um, definitely a different time than what it is now. I think even after, you know, once I got into the aviation unit, the kind of the political climate and stuff changed. So I don't know if I could go back and do it again. <laughs> and, you know, and it's hard to kind of recommend people to do it now just because it is an unknown. And yeah, you have to spend quite a bit of time putting up with the, uh, you know, all the politics that kind of come with it. So, yeah, it's interesting. Policing is certainly way harder now than, than it was. Yeah. And I've often thought about that, you know, like the, having to make the decision, like, you know, if you're, you know, making a decision to pull a weapon on someone, you know, and yeah. you don't really have much time to think. I remember when I did the ride along, you know, we would pull over cars that looked pretty suspect, you know, they had like the, the rims sticking out of the tires and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they look like they're up to no good. And I remember like sitting in the cop car thinking like, Oh, like watching my, my buddy, he's not a very big guy. Like walk up to this car, like, Oh my God, dude, like, are you going to get shot? You know? And so like, I definitely, uh, I can see that being kind of just intense. Where, where did you, what, 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 uh, agency were you with? So it was Gwinnett County police department. And that's uh, Northeast of Atlanta. So still Metro, Metro Atlanta. And then, uh, we still had some like countryside. So you had a pretty nice. good combination of, of both, but yeah, pretty big County. A lot of people, um, stayed fairly busy, but yeah, the, the missions, you know, 90% boredom flying in circles, looking for stuff that may or may not be there. And then, you know, the 10% of excitement. So sometimes yeah, it course. was, uh, you, you built, built time. And if you were proactive, you could get into stuff, but yeah, definitely. Uh, I would. I would guess that we have some listeners that are probably law enforcement right now with the goal of wanting to kind of transition into their specific air unit for their agency. Yep. Uh, you said it took four years. What were some, what, obviously it's probably heavily weighted on department versus department, things like that. And everything's different, but from your experience, what was the process of, I'm sure it's competitive. Everyone would probably want to go and fly the helicopter or at least, a lot of people, what, what, what was the best way that you kind of put yourself ahead of the game to help get yourself into that unit? Um, well, I think pr- having my, you know, my private license in a helicopter was probably, you know, the big major first hurdle. And then, uh, just, you know, making yourself available to those guys. It was a small unit and they didn't have assigned uh, tactical flight officers. So they were always calling road road officers to come in to ride in the helicopter to do that you know, the police related mission and stuff. And, uh, I just, anytime there was an opportunity to go up, you know, I'd come in on my off time or, you know, just let them know that I was available to get to know all those guys over there. And I think, you know, networking is probably still the best, best thing. So. Yeah. And anything we do in this business, I mean, any business, it's all about who, you know, and about, you know, putting yourself in the best position. I mean, we talk about this on the podcast all the time. It's like, if you want a job, you got to, you got to do more than just like, you know, submit the resume on the online portal, right? You got to yeah. go out, you got to, you know, it's, you have to kind of politic yourself, right? You have to go yeah. out, shake hands, you know, put your best foot forward, be a team player, have a good attitude. Cause yeah. my guess is like something in like an air unit uh, in law enforcement. I mean, like those guys are probably more worried about, Hey, can we tolerate working with this guy yeah. all the time? Yeah. Uh, other than like, can he fly a helicopter? You know, I'm, I'm guessing it's kind of more of a personality. Hey, is he going to kind of click within our unit? What, what airframe were you all operating? So we had 500 E's that they eventually converted to the 530 F. 
Okay, so, cool. Yeah. So that helped me tre tremendously trying to get into utility work because, you know, at least East Coast utility work is all pretty much done with a 500. Um, and what was that, you know, once you got selected for the air unit, what did that training consist of? And, and how long did that take to go from private to then commercial? Did they pay for that training? And, you know, kind of to when you're then operating PIC flying law enforcement missions. Yeah. So, uh, back then, so I was able to get my, they paid for my commercial and my CFI over the course of, you know, a period of years. Um, but I was able to actually go over there in my off time with those guys and build hours towards my commercial ever before, before I ever got selected to fly full time. Um, so that was really good because they were kind of prepping. They knew that they wanted to select me eventually out of, you know, some of the other candidates. There was other people that got there before I did, but uh, at some point you, they knew I was going to make it over there. So they were trying to, you know, build me up beforehand because just because the uh, the admin wouldn't move me over there full time into a certain time frame. Um, so I got my commercial about the same time I got selected to go over there full time. And then at that time, there was really no additional training on top of that. So I was PIC flying law enforcement missions at like nice. 200 hours, <laughs> which <laughs> in, hindsight, in, in hindsight, yeah, it, in hindsight, you know, totally crazy. It shouldn't have been that way, but you know, it was, I think now they're up to, they're probably 500 hours before they get cut loose out on their own doing stuff, but it's all in-house yeah, training. So. That's wild. You know, I mean, that's, um, it's hard for me to kind of recall where I was at at 200 hours. You know, I yeah. guess where I was at was finish my CFI, applying to become a CFI and still like, wasn't like, you know, I, I would still like not shoot a good approach, yeah. <laughs> you know, or like I still felt uneasy about autos or 180 autos or, you know, confined areas, whatever it may be. Like, I, I feel like I wasn't like the, and maybe it's just me. I wasn't, maybe I lacked confidence or I just, you know, but at 200 hours, I mean, you don't, you don't have a ton of, you know, experience under the belt. I guess it's nice that at least you were getting a fair amount of experience in your commercial training in the aircraft. Yeah. Cause that could be kind of a tall order if you're going to say from like an R22 Oh, now yeah. they're thrusting you into an E model. Yeah. You know, kind of a night and day difference performance wise and, and kind of just every, every, everything about it is way different. So I guess that that probably helped, but you do kind of look back and, and feel like, Oh man, there's uh you know, was there some learning moments within that uh, early times that you kind of scared yourself? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I definitely wouldn't <laughs> recommend it. And I, and that they've changed their, their way since then. We just didn't have the staffing to, you know, justify, you know, waiting for somebody to get to 500 hours at that time. Um, but yeah, no, definitely, you know, learn from your own mistakes. You don't really have anybody there, you know, to ask if, Hey, I should do this or not. So luckily I made pretty good decisions and, you know, came out unscathed, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're still here. We're talking yeah. today. So you did, you, you did something right. You know, that's yeah. half the battle, right? It's like anytime you start a new job, whether you're a low time pilot or an experienced pilot, there's always a trepidation of this, you know, oh, you know, shit, can I do this? You know? Yeah. Um, and usually you can, you know, usually your ability kind of, at least in my experience, like my abilities always kind of surpass my, my like expectation of like, Oh no, should I be doing this? Can I be doing this? And, and you kind of just figure it out as you go. The best, the best training in some in regards is, is on the job. 
You know, yeah. I've always, I, you know, you go through a training program at a company, learn how they like to do things, kind of get their way down. But, you know, most of your actual aha moments during the training process kind of come from just doing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Utility, it's it's definitely like that. <laughs> you, you know, you can only do it so much with somebody there before they got to cut you loose and you got to, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah, obviously seriously. they don't want you, major mistakes or, you know, you can't make those, but you got to go make your own little mistakes to figure out how to do it, you know, more proficiently. And was it kind of always your goal that, Hey, I'm going to build my time up in this, this law enforcement setting and then transition back over to the civilians or yeah, I guess civilian side, uh, and, and fly utility or, or how did that all kind of come about? Uh, I mean, the original goal was to stay there, you know, till retirement or whatever, but, um, at that time, the police department just had a 401k, so there was no like pension or anything that required you to stay there a certain amount of time. Um, so there's nothing really holding me there. And then as soon as I started, you know, the the whole 90% boredom, 10% excitement thing, and then you see utility guys who are, you know, doing, you know, they're actually flying like all day long doing, you know, I would call it cooler, cooler things in my mind at that point, um, what I thought was cooler. Um, it just kind of you know, drew me to that. And the, you know, the pay difference was where I was at was substantially, you know, better. So, uh, just started kind of networking my way into that and applying places. Once I reached, I was probably like 2000 hours, um, just decided to talk to my wife, decided that we wanted to, you know, try it now, see if I could break into it, but it's a hard industry to get into. So it definitely took some, uh, took some time. Yeah, no, I'm definitely curious. A lot of our listeners have reached out kind of wanting to go the utility path. And it's just a path I'm not good about talking about because it's not a path that I went. Uh, so I'm really curious to kind of hear that path. But before we get too deep into it, we're going to take a quick break for a quick sponsor call. Bell is proud to sponsor Vertical Helicasts and their vision to hold meaningful mission, safety, and best practice conversations in the helicopter industry. The lessons learned from these conversations will undoubtedly shape the future of both new and veteran helicopter operators. All right. So like I was saying before the uh, break there that, you know, again, a lot of people actually reach out um, on social media and like, hey, get more utility guys on. So look, I've, I've heard what you're saying. I got I got a boy Brad here. So we're good, right? Brad, you can just inspire us. You can just be our token uh, helicopter podcast utility guy. All right. Uh, hopefully, hopefully we can get some more on too. I've had, I don't know what people are talking about though. I've had some decent utility guys on, but anyway, I digress. You know, you're looking at options, pays, pays one of the things, boredom. You know, I could definitely see law enforcement, you know, lots of, lots of circles. You know, you're, you're probably getting a fair amount of flight time, which is good. Uh, but, you know, a lot of what you're doing is, you know, just, spinning circles in the sky. It's probably similar to like one of your other jobs. I think that you had was like the uh, electronic news gathering, uh, yeah. which myself and producers acted as well. Uh, and that, I got like, I think my record was like an hour and 20 minutes orbiting over the same little wreck, you know, in 1604 in San Antonio, I was like, okay, this I'm getting yeah. dizzy. Like I, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you know, you kind of mentioned that it, that from your perspective, it's hard to break into the utility world. And again, I, I can't say that because I don't know that. So what, why is, what makes the utility world hard to break into? Uh, so everybody wants, you know, previous experience, you know, 
so it's kind of hard to get that previous experience when nobody's willing to train you. Um, and at that time there was probably maybe like two companies that would take, you know, lower time guys and, and get them into the wire environment and, you know, build them up. And, uh, yeah. So at that time it was Haverfield was probably the biggest one. They're, they're kind of closing their doors now and changing up, but yeah. So they would start you like on power line patrol. So you wouldn't be doing any construction. You'd just be cruising up, taking a look at the lines, inspecting them. And that would get you used to being in a 500, get you used to being down near the wire and then, uh, you know, working with a, you know, a good lineman to kind of explain the bits and pieces. Cause what we do is we're pretty much building, you know, building or maintaining, repairing the, the, the power lines. So if you don't understand what the job is, you can't really, <laughs> you can't put the helicopter in the right spot to help these guys, you know, do that. Yeah. Job. So, yeah. Cause essentially you're kind of just the taxi driver to get them in a position where they can do whatever they need to do. Yeah. And there's a bunch of small movements you can make that really help them. So once you understand the process, of, you know, what, depending on the task, like what they're actually trying to accomplish, you can do little fine movements that'll, you know, save them tremendously or, you know, <laughs> to where you can't even do it at all. So it's something you kind of got to build up to. And, uh, like I said, most of those companies will start you in patrol, uh, doing like LIDAR scans and stuff like that. Um, and then if they have, uh, actual construction and maintenance side, they'll move you in. Uh, long line times, probably the hardest thing for anybody to get external load. Um, so I didn't have any of that. I had plenty of time in a 500. I was super comfortable flying the machine, but zero external load. Um, I had done skid transfers and stuff with our SWAT team and the uh, Swiftwater team, which was one of the reasons I was like, oh, I can, you know, I can do this. You know, I've, <laughs> I've done it to yeah, I've done it to a rock in the river, a rooftop or whatever. And then, you know, now you're hovering, you know, under power lines and in between power lines. And it's like, okay, yep, yeah, nope, not the same thing at all. Yeah, this is this is different. This yeah. is, yeah, so. I mean, even the, the simple, uh, you know, my understanding is even like the quote unquote simple patrol is still very dangerous. I mean, you're, you're very much in the wire environment. Uh, producer Zach and myself actually had a, a, a mutual friend at, at that company. Many, many years back, you know, first day on the line flying patrol, uh, had a wire strike. Yep. And, you know, he, he didn't make it and the lineman didn't make it either. So, I mean, flying in that environment, even if you're doing kind of, you know, it, the easier side of utility is still very, very dangerous. Um, I did a wire strike class years ago and it was put on by PG&E uh, up in Portland and it was pretty cool. I took a, I took a lot of things away from it and it was a combined class of pilots and linemen and kind of the central message was like, Hey, the dude in the back knows more about the wire environment than you up front. Most likely yeah. like utilize, utilize them to help kind of make that environment safe. Was that something that you would agree with? Is that something that you experienced as you were getting into it? Yeah, definitely. And even at the police department, we took some classes like that. Um, uh, flying in the wire environment. I can't remember who uh, who puts it on, but then there's like crew resource management in the wire environment. Um, yeah, they definitely, the linemen know that area way better than you. But yeah, the patrol side is actually probably more dangerous because complacency sets in after you've been flying for you know eight hours a day and you're not flying the same spot. So like doing construction, I'm working up each day. I'm probably only working like a four mile section of line. I'm just going back and forth all day or sitting in a hover all day. <clears throat> Whereas the patrol side, you're cruising for miles on end 
And if you're paying attention to the line that you're following and there's another overhead line that cuts in front of you, then yeah, if you're not, you know, reading the hardware further up, you'll run right into stuff. So That's yeah, really I would actually, yeah, I would actually argue that the patrol stuff is, you know, probably as dangerous as the actual construction side. That's wild. Yeah. You know, wire It's just, you know, flying the wire environment is, is scary. My experience in the wire environment was, you know, flying air medical, you know, for landing off airport for scene call, yeah. you know, especially at night, you know, we had under, we were under MVG and you can kind of see, you know, yeah. uh, but you really can't see anything. We would, yeah. for us, you know, our method of, our, our first method was myself and one of the, the crew members both had MVGs. So, you know, hopefully you can see something. The next mitigation was literally fly the world's slowest approach. So if you contact a wire, you can hopefully back up from the wire. I mean, yeah. that was, that was our, our instructed mitigation of it, which was like an intense thing to kind of, you know, comprehend, you know, I, I didn't love doing those, yeah, those nighttime scene calls just for that. You know, you got the volunteer fire department down there, and they're like, "What? Yeah. What's a wire? <laughs> everything's <laughs> everything's no, good. <laughs> everything's clear." And you're like, yeah. "On you're on short final." And you're like, "Well, what about this wire that I'm about to run into? Did, yeah. did anyone want to point that out? The one that yeah. you're standing right under? Like, yeah, you know." So it's uh, that's definitely intense. I I can imagine flying in that um, that environment kind of consistently. How long were you doing patrol, and did you have times that uh scared you uh so i actually uh i applied for a lot of those places but i had networked with the the company that i work with now that i talked to that the owner of that company quite extensively and i got to know him pretty well and he was moving his operation to georgia where i lived at and so i kind of held out from doing all those other jobs i interviewed uh at haverfield and turned that offer down and stayed where i was at and in hopes that he would hire me but they actually didn't do much patrol work. Uh, so the, the idea was they did aerial tree trimming. I don't know if you've seen that with the, uh, the giant with saw the, with the saw. Yeah. yeah. So you don't have to have a specific amount of time, external load time to fly that because there's no other people involved. It's just you and the machine. So just you you, nine saw blades. Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. Um, don't knock the power <laughs> out. Or, yeah. What could go wrong? It's fine. But they were going to train me to do that because, uh, that's a good way to kind of cut your teeth. Uh, no, no pun intended. No um, pun intended. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, Cut your teeth, actually learning how to fly an external load. Um, however, they were really slow on the tree trimming side and they were, you know, mainly doing power line construction. So I went over there with the kind of, you know, taking a step back from flying. And I was actually just a fuel truck driver for the, the other pilot. And then whenever there was times on jobs that they could fit me in or let me fly the whole job or whatever, I would get experience here and there. So it probably took a year of, you know, mainly driving a truck around following the other pilot um, and him training me as we would go. And in the evenings, if we had extra time, I'd, you know, put the long line on and go fly around and try to put it in a trash can and stuff like that, just to get experience as, as much as I could. But yeah, I definitely took kind of a step out of the pilot seat, you know, full time um, in hopes that it would, you know, progress me quicker versus having to spend, you know, couple years doing power line patrol stuff. Cause that, you know, it's cool, but the construction side is what really interested me. Yeah. So. You're kind of more, more interested in doing that work. And I love that. Uh, we've talked about it before with other guests, uh, kind of more so maybe on the, well, actually utility and ag, where yeah, it's ag, like, definitely. you know, 
if you're listening, you know, take take note to what Brad was just saying because it's so true that if you, you know, it's kind of like this. I don't know if a catch twenty two is the right phrase, but it's like okay, you want to do an operation, but in order to do the operation, you typically need experience. But how do you get experience without anyone hiring? It's kind of like this unsolvable problem, and it happens in the ag world. And I think what you what you just said is like. That's the secret sauce. Start networking, start communicating with the right people and be willing to do something that's not a quote unquote full-time pilot job. Glamorous. Going out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, drive, yeah, driving the fuel truck, washing the helicopter, you know, doing whatever other miscellaneous tasks that you can do to yeah. learn the operation from that other side is probably not a guaranteed path, but a very solid path of yep. eventually getting to where you want to get. And so I, I'm glad that you said that, and I'm glad to hear that you did that. And, uh, it, you know, it's cool that you were able to take advantage of certain times to, you know, not just learn the the operation from the ground, but also partake in doing some external load and kind yeah. of cutting your teeth and kind of practicing that way. So that was, that was about a year of your, your experience. Yeah, so there was there was jobs. There was a few like patrol and inspection jobs that they were able to put me on by myself, and I went out and did those. Um, but yeah, I, it took about a year to actually get enough experience to go out and do like a full job on my own without having to have another pilot, you know, wait in the truck for that one thing you're not capable of doing. Um, yeah, and I think uh, I actually listened to your one of your last podcasts with uh, is it Lucas from uh, Switzerland? Lucas River, yeah, yeah. badass so, dude. Yeah, so how they do their a couple years of being a load specialist yep. uh, before they fly was kind of the same. It was the same thing, a shorter time. I, you know, I didn't have to do it for three years or two years like he kind of had to. But uh, I definitely learned a lot from being on the ground with the linemen. And then I even got to ride like on the long line and go out to the structure and see how they actually did stuff with the helicopter being above me. So it, you yeah, know, I kind of know both ends of it. Yeah. <laughs> what what's that like? It's cool. It's like a it's like a magic carpet ride. The helicopter <laughs> so it's so high up that the sound's not near as loud and you're just sort of float floating in space. But yeah. How high up are you usually? Nah, I usually don't go above like two two or three hundred feet. So Ugh, still it would still freak me out. Just yeah. like what if the pilot twitches and drops yeah. the load or something? Yep. <laughs> like you're along for the ride. God, that would be terrifying. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, again, to, to become a master at any operation, understanding all aspects of it's probably super important. Yep. What, um, did you do? I mean, I'm fascinated to hear cause I don't think I've ever talked to anyone. Did you end up doing any of the tree trimming ever? So I've got probably 30 hours of doing that. Yeah. So I went out and, uh, we were slow year before last. So they kind of let me go see, see how good I could do at it. And I can, I can cut a straight line, but it just takes me, I have to go back and do like multiple passes to get all the little branches and stuff. So I'm not, uh, I'm not proficient enough to make money doing it. So yeah, you're not, yeah. uh, you're not production at yeah. the, uh, the saw, the heli saw. Yeah. I can pick it up and sling it around and put it in the trees and make sawdust, but yeah, I'm not, <laughs> not, not yet. If, if the opportunity presents itself, I'll go out and, you know, do more of it, but yeah, get, it just now. takes, Takes yeah. takes practice, I'm sure. That would just be intimidating, you know. That's quite the load to have underneath you, um, and 
it, you know, it seems like, yeah, oftentimes you're cutting it through like a right away or, or whatever you would call it is, you know, you're kind of paralleling power lines. Like you're, you're one little twitch away from cutting off power to all of Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, they, they get mad. Know. They get mad when you do that, but it happens. I mean, uh, especially distribution lines, like the lines that lead up to people's houses and stuff. There's very small clearances. And a lot of times they wait till the, the tree is overhanging the power line and then they want you to cut it. And it's like, you have to, you have to be skilled enough to cut it a certain way where it doesn't just drop right onto the power line. So yeah, that can be definitely, definitely tricky. Yeah. There's, that's a whole nother skill set in itself from external load. Cause you have to know how to, you know, most times when you pick up a load, it's point A to point B. As soon as you pick it up, you put your head inside and you, you fly there. And then 150 feet out, you put your head out the door. Whereas tree trimming, you're trying to make that straight line all day long. So your head's out the door for nine hours a day trying to fly the load moving in a, in a perfectly straight line. So it's a, yeah, that would be a whole, difficult. A whole different animal. Yeah. It's pretty cool. One of our clients, uh, on my, in my sales business, um, they do a lot of really cool aerial imaging, you know, yeah. for utility companies. And I got to sit in on a presentation that they gave last year just to kind of see their technology. And, you know, the, with the LIDAR and the cameras and everything, you know, essentially they can, they can now do a line inspection, like, you know, 500 plus feet above, you know, yeah. uh, with, with a, uh, with a camera. And then on top of that, they're, they're using this LIDAR and their software that they put the LIDAR data into is then able to know the species of the tree and it could be multiple species in one area. And then it can kind of forecast out how long it's going to take for that species of tree to get to a point where it now needs to be trimmed back uh, yeah. from the line, which is like incredible. And now they're actually throwing also a methane detection system on that same helicopter. So now they're 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 They can be five, 500 to 800 feet sniffing for methane, LIDARing the line and doing a, a, you know, a line inspection with the camera, which is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it's pretty rad. Certainly, I think a direction of safety, you know, just being able to fly a little bit higher, not necessarily being immersed in, in the environment. So I think technology is helping with that. And it's all crazy. It's crazy stuff that, you know, the amount of infrastructure that we have that relies heavily on helicopters to, to keep things going and keep things going safely. Yeah. You know, and I know here on the West Coast a lot, there's been a big push, you know, with the methane detection and with just forest fires starting from like overgrowth onto power lines, it's been a big issue on the West Coast. So, you know, a lot of money is being spent by uh, local governments to kind of mitigate all that. So, you know, helicopters play such a vital role in just keeping our infrastructure going, which is pretty cool. And and you, you're the guy that's doing it, right? You're one of the one of the guys that's in the seat that's actually keeping this machine going, which is which is pretty fascinating. So. Admittedly, when you talk about like, okay, patrol versus construction, I kind of get it. I, I definitely understand what patrol is, but I don't necessarily understand like what encompasses construction. Like what, like what, is there a base definition of like, okay, now what I'm doing is construction. Is it just anything that's setting poles, pulling line, putting linemen online? What, what does that actually encompass? Yeah. So, uh, 
a lot of the like the new wind farms and stuff, they don't have any you know lines leading out from them. So you're actually starting from from zero. Uh, most of the time, if they can get a bucket truck there or a crane, they'll set the tower the actual base structure up with a, a crane. Sometimes in some areas, like a swampy area, they'll use the helicopter to do all that. So like a sky crane will come in and set the actual large section of the tower. Uh, our company, the biggest thing we have is a Huey. So like 3000 pounds is about the max you would be able to lift with that. Um, so we may set like arms on the side of the tower. And then the 500 primarily is actually moving linemen and material. Um, and we'll pick up to, you know, a thousand pounds would be about the max that we could pick up um, for the precision that you'd want to do. But yeah, so we'll fly the linemen out either on the long line, you know, two guys on the bottom of a rope, you bring them out, you set them on the tower uh, in the spot that they're going to be working. Then you come back in and you pick up like say a glass insulator that, uh, you know, shields the wire from the tower. You fly that out there. They pin that on. You put these big rollers, you fly those out there. They pin those on. Um, and then another thing, like you were talking about, it's a power line. It's you pull rope in first. So that's what the helicopter attaches to a rope on a big drum. And we pull it through and connect it to all the towers. And then they use that rope later on to back pull the power line in. But all of those pieces wow. and, and linemen all get flown out there with the uh, with the helicopter. So, so the helicopter is like a seriously vital tool to yeah. you know, setting up these lines. Yeah. So they can, they can do all this stuff depending on the terrain. They can do it traditionally with a truck, you know, a bucket truck and, you know, climbing out on the wire and putting like spacer buggies on the wire to put all these pieces on. But if there's a, uh, any sort of terrain that's hard to get to or manpower wise, they can't afford to, you know, bring out five extra crews to do it. The helicopter can come in and do it faster and, you know, more efficiently. So if there's no time, you know, no time constraint and they have plenty of people, they'll do it the old school way. But if there's any sort of uh, environmental impact that, you know, they need to avoid or uh, a time, con you know, constriction, then they'll hire a helicopter to do it. Man, it's crazy. What is it like that first time that you have people underneath your helicopter on a long line? you think you know what you're doing and then you put them on there and you're like, Oh God, I really, <laughs> I really hope that I can do it the same way I did without having a person on there. But yeah, you got to have, you know, the right guys. And I was fortunate enough to have some really cool guys that wanted to see me succeed. And uh, obviously they knew I could do it, you know, to whatever job we were doing at the time. Um, so they were, you know, they're willing to get on there and, you know, help you out and teach you, teach you how to do it. But yeah, you're, you're trusting them just as much as, you know, they're trusting you. But yeah, it's definitely uh you switch like your mindset from, you know, oh, this is fun to, okay, now, <laughs> you know, everything's serious. If you screw up, it's not just bouncing, you know, an empty weight bag off the, off the tower. Like you could hurt somebody. So yeah, yeah no, everything kind of slows crazy, down. Crazy concept to, you know, to short haul someone it's uh would be a wild experience. And when, when you're, when you're putting someone on a pole or, or two guys, on a, on a platform or wherever you place them on from, from long lining them in there, are you, you're just looking down and, and you know, like, okay, they're, they're good. Or do they disconnect themselves and give you a hand signal? Like how, how does that all work? Yeah. So uh, depending on the length of the long line, it's kind of hard to tell your depth perception. So you're relying on the lineman quite a bit to, uh, to give you head signals. So like if they shake their head, no, that means go down. 
they shake their head yes, that means go up. If they throw their hand out like pretty much level, that means just hold what you got like uh, height wise. Um, and then even if they're not doing that, they're typically always looking at the bottom of the long line or looking if they're on the line, they're looking where they want to go. So you can see which way their head is pointing. So, you know, if you're too high or too low. Um, so there's a bunch of little visual cues that you pick up on over time that help you, you know, bring the load to the right spot. And then there's some days it's just, you know, <laughs> it's luck if you get it, if you get it to stay in, in the right spot. If, if they're not helping you and there's no, uh, if, like the uh, the sun's not up and you don't have good shadow references and stuff. It's just, you know, you get used to flying the same length rope and you try to make it look the same every time. But yeah, if they ask you to, Hey, throw a, throw a 150 foot you know line on and you've been flying a 50 foot line. Like, okay, well <laughs> bear with yeah, me. Now because, yeah. Everything's, <laughs> everything's going to look a little bit different today. Yeah. So yeah, you're going to have to help me out a little bit, but yeah. So it's just, it's, it's kind of like flying night vision goggles where you build up all those kind of visual cues to, you know, different sizes of things to know your depth perception. Um, it's kind of the same thing, but it's all now you're just your head's out the door looking down, trying not to swing the <laughs> swing the line, a place that it shouldn't go. So. Yeah, that's crazy. Hey, we're going to take a quick break for our final sponsor call. This podcast is brought to you by Celicopter. Tired of listings that go nowhere? Exhausted by tire kickers who waste your time? Don't sell your helicopter alone. Celicopter handles the entire process from start to finish. So, if your helicopter is sat too long, waiting for a buyer, contact the team at Celicopter today for your complimentary market valuation. Call 1-855-CELICOPTER, 1-855-735-5226, or email sales at Celicopter.com. Celicopter. List it, sell it, done. So at this point, how long have you been flying kind of more of the construction side of the house? Has this been a couple of years now, longer than that? Uh, I've been here four years and I flew for the police department for like five and a half years. So Okay. So you're going on a, almost 10 years called of flight yeah. experience. Yeah. And what uh, – you know, one thing that I I always talk about is just like a lifestyle. The utility lifestyle is tough. I heard earlier you mentioned the the W word, a wife. Um, yeah. You know, I know that utility usually means that you're kind of traveling a lot. You're on the road a lot. I think it's kind of important for to talk about, you know, because I, you can't just work in life. There has to be kind of a balance, you know, and I think yeah. sometimes in aviation – it's hard to find that balance, especially doing utility and things like that. What does that look like for you in your personal life? Yeah. So if we had young kids, it would be, you know, 10 times harder. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, you're gone a lot and the flex, you have to be super flexible with your schedule. Um, because we're, we're a smaller company, so we don't have an abundance of pilots. So if, if all of our helicopters are flying, that means there's probably only two pilots in reserve. Um, to swap with you. So if that job goes, you know, if your rotation is supposed to be three weeks, but that job's going to go five weeks, you're probably just going to stay out that five weeks. You're probably not, <laughs> probably not coming home. Um, some companies, if they have, you know, an equal amount of pilots, you know, to rotate on the same helicopter, then you may actually see a even on off schedule, but yeah, sure. you definitely, uh, you have to get used to living in a hotel, keeping your bags packed, you know, 
as soon as you get home, they may call you to come back out if there's a last minute job or a storm comes in and, you know, knocks all the power lines out. And you're like, okay, well, leave all your stuff in your bag. And you, if you, if you want to keep working there, you're probably going to have to go out and do it. So. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it looks like I'm talking to you from a hotel room today. So I yep. think you're on the yep. road. Which is good because the internet's better. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yep. I, um, yeah, that would be tough. So, I mean, for you, like your schedule is kind of, would you call it unknown? Like, you know, you could be gone for three weeks and then home for two days and then gone for another three weeks. Or is it, if you have like, let's say you have a five week stint, I mean, do you usually have like a decent little break in between? Yeah, they're, they're trying to get you home. And uh, if you're on a long-term job, they like say you have a year long project, they can go ahead and budget to have, you know, two pilots on that. So you get a pretty good even rotation. So the first half of this year, I was, you know, I worked just as much as I was off. So I'd work three weeks and I'd go home three weeks. And uh, that's nice. Yeah. When you're home for three weeks and you have, you know, you don't have to, you know, wait for your Monday to come around. You get three Mondays before you ever have to go back to work. It's, it's pretty nice. Um, But yeah, now that like that long-term job's over, there's a bunch of small jobs and you're at the, you know, you're at the client's disposal. If they want you there on, you know, Tuesday, then you're going to show up on Tuesday. And if the next one wants you there on Friday (laughs) and you don't have time to go home, you're just going to go straight to that next job. So you kind of have to be flexible to bounce around. And I'm guessing it's probably like a seven, seven day a week operation for the most part. I mean, you guys are operating, you know, Sunday to Sunday. Uh, so some like the, uh, the jobs where we're trying to get them done quick, they'll, they may work a seven day work week, but most of the time you're off of, uh, you're off on Sundays. So, and Saturday is usually a half day. So it, it just depends on the customer. If, uh, the linemen have whatever their schedule is, is what you end up working. So. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think the moral of the story is that you're gone a lot. It's a, it's a fun, challenging job. You're going to do a lot of cool things. Uh, but you probably have to, you know, you have to have the right partner. You know, you have to have like the right spouse that's yep. that's cool with all that. So, you know, it sounds like that's maybe the situation that you're in. We had a guest recently. She uh she had a pretty good thing going on. She flies for Columbia and so does her husband. They're both pilots yep. at Columbia Helicopters cool. and they're on the same rotation. So they're they work for 28 days sometimes even together. And yeah. then they're, they're guaranteed to be home, you know, during that yeah. same off time. So like, that was like, okay, that's super convenient. Yeah. So uh, my wife, my wife was a teacher and she just left to, uh, hopefully next year, she's going to start traveling with me and being my fuel truck driver as much as she can. Oh, so nice. <laughs> we'll have the same schedule and it work work at the same place. So. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You make it work yeah. that way. Yeah. I don't know if you want to work with your wife, pal. I work with mine. Let me tell you. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. Uh, Hillary, if you're listening, I love you and I love working with you. Um, yeah, I think my wife's been full time now for Celicopter for, and going on, I think it's about three years now. We haven't killed each other. Yeah. And she uh, honestly kind of keeps the, keeps the machine going. So uh, yeah. I'm very lucky. Uh, but we do have kind of our separate spaces, which kind of helps. And yeah. I guess when you're flying, she won't be with you so that you'll get a little break at least. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and she's got a, you know, an invested interest in, you know, doing, doing her, her job as the fuel truck, you know, keeping the fuel <laughs> yeah. sumped and stuff a little bit more yeah. than, than some people where they kind of slack off. And, yeah. Yeah. It's like cold in the morning and you're like, ah, do I really need to sump the truck? I've been doing it every week. It's been fine. Yeah. Yeah. She'll, she'll sump it every time. That's good. Yeah. yeah you gotta, so. you gotta trust everyone within an operation. For sure. Well, that's, you know, it's fascinating. It's uh it's certainly a different, 
helicopter. I mean, it might as well just be a completely different world from what I'm used to uh, when I was flying full time. Uh, very exciting. You know, I think when people think of helicopters, they think of utility. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people also like, I, I feel like in flight school, if you ask, you know, 10 students, five of them will tell you they want to fly air medical. Five of them will tell you that they want to fly, you know, utility. The five that end up flying utility have a lot of fun and do a lot of cool stuff. And the five that pick air medical realize that it's not that fun. <laughs> <laughs> but After you're home. about a year, yeah. but you're home yeah. sometimes, you know, depending. Yeah. Um, the, 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 here's the magic bullet for air medical. If you grew up in some podunk middle of the nowhere town, then air medical is for you. Cause most likely that town has a helicopter. Nobody else wants to work there. And you just conveniently really want to live and work there. I got yeah. a buddy like that, you know, and uh, up in North Dakota, I think it's North, North or South. I want to say North. And it's like, he, you know, he's literally just flying in the town that he grew up in. They have a ranch there. And that was always his, his deals, you know, so air medical is super convenient and awesome for him. But I feel like utility, like when I look at utility, I'm like, man, that would be, that would be something. Even just flying the 500. I've never even flown a 500. Just flying that thing at altitude would be a blast, you know, let yeah. alone short hauling people and equipment and things, um, you know, saws, all that cool stuff. You ever do any like the torching, the heli torch? No. no, haven't done any of that. You've seen that YouTube video before? It's like, yeah. uh, I think it was like Brim Aviation actually up here in Oregon. Yeah. And uh, they got like that flamethrower <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> from the bottom of the helicopter. It's like, yeah, sign me up for that. I want to do that. That looks, yeah. they That's do that. The, uh, the part about utility is like it, at some point it was just a bunch of guys sitting around guys or girls and uh, like, Hey, I think we can do this <laughs> with a helicopter. And, you know, probably there's beer involved and they're like, Oh, of course. Yeah, let's go out and <laughs> let's go out and try it. And sure. Let's go see what worked. this is like. Yeah. 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 yeah like the yeah, first I'd... person to go up to an energized power line and, you know, bond onto it. It's like, I think we can do this. Well, somebody's got to be the well, first one to go up hold and... <laughs> my beer and watch this. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, or like, yeah, who's the guy that thought, you know, a nine-bladed saw from the bottom of a helicopter was ever a good idea? Yeah. You know, that, that takes some – that's definitely some, like, drunk ambition yeah. right there. Like, that was definitely over beers. Yeah. And, like, Probably a joke. Drawn on, like, a, a <laughs> yeah. you know, a napkin. A bar like, napkin. You yeah, guys, look at go. this. This is a great idea. <laughs> great <laughs> yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, that's, and that's the neat part about helicopters. Again, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like, there's so much, there's so much that helicopters do to keep, keep the world ticking uh, that there's, you know, it's almost endless possibilities that you can do. I mean, that's what I think makes helicopters so special. You know, I think the general public has kind of this fear of helicopters, which I understand you know, usually if a helicopter crashes, it's not good. Then you have accidents like with the Kobe accident. That's not, that's not great PR for the helicopter industry as a whole. But I don't think what people realize is how much helicopters are involved in, in just keeping this, this infrastructure that we have running construction yeah. side, power side, the utility side, air medical side. It's just like so much of our world is actually wrapped into this industry that we're in. So I think it's pretty cool. And so I always kind of tell people, you know, that are maybe naysayers of helicopters, kind of remind them like, Hey man, 
helicopters do a lot of really good things, you know? Um, and yeah, sometimes they crash. So do cars, you know, it's, uh, it's just kind of the, the way, the way of the world. What, uh, for me flying utility, there has to be a lot of risk mitigation because, you know, you're always kind of flying in an area, you know, you're in the height velocity diagram, you're doing a lot of crazy things. You're in the wire environment. What is, what is the way that you approach mitigating and assessing risk? Uh, well, I think the, probably the biggest thing for us is the weather. Um, that's going to change whether or not you can or can't do something that day. Cause if it's a perfectly calm day, other than, you know, the helicopter having some sort of mechanical malfunction, um, that's going to be your next kind of your next thing that says you can or can't do it is the winds. Um, but yeah, just if you're approaching something new that you haven't done before, then, you know, you got to take, take baby steps to get there and, uh, don't just jump right into something. Or if you have a question, you, you have to be able to call somebody and ask how to do something. Um, having an experienced lineman with you on most of this stuff is kind of a game changer. Cause they've, they've ridden with more pilots than, <laughs> than you have. Cause you know, you're just the, the one pilot. You're the one so, guy. Uh, yeah. So taking their experience and they can sometimes coach you through how to do certain things um, just as well as another pilot could, cause you're actually, they're getting seven people's inputs versus just that one other person telling you what to do. But yeah, some of the yeah. stuff we do, it's just, I mean, it's a, it's a shit, shit sandwich. <laughs> no, no matter totally. what, if, yeah, if the helicopter breaks, you know, in that certain area, like there's nothing you can really do. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. You're going to have a heart. You're going to crunch. You're going to crunch the, the skids, yeah. probably hurt your back, probably walk away. Yeah. Usually walk so. away. Maybe not, you yeah. know, but uh, yeah, it's always kind of that risk versus reward. You know, there's just certain times where you have to be within kind of that envelope of higher risk, but then there's reward or there's kind of a necessity of doing it. Yeah. You know, you're not going to just hang out in the HV curve forever if you don't have to, right? Like yeah. I'm not going to do it in, in the missions that I've flown unless I'm, you know, flying air medical and I'm flying, you know, yeah. the world's slowest approach at night. So I don't hit a wire, you know? Yeah. yeah. For me, I'm more worried about hitting a wire and, you know, less concerned about the engine, you know, having a, having an engine issue or some right. other mechanical issue at that, yeah. that, that, that point of flight. So it kind of makes sense. Well, this has been fun. I really appreciate it, Brad. Uh, what's your Instagram handle again? It's uh BJ Isaacs. Okay. BJ Isaacs. Check him out. He's a pretty big deal. 25,000 followers. Not a big deal, but, uh, you got are you, half, like half of them are probably bots. So it's, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're like in, uh, the middle East bots or not. Hey, whatever. It's cool. Spam. Yeah. Has have having followers like that? Has that opened up any other opportunities? Uh, well, actually, I mean, getting this job with uh with HLH actually started from an Instagram conversation with the with the owner. So, I mean, just getting here was you know the first first conversation back and forth started there, and then yeah, I've definitely had some other opportunities to do stuff through through social media. So it can be a good thing, and then yeah, if the people that don't understand what we're doing see something, it can also be a negative thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of a balance for sure. Yeah. Uh, But I think it's pretty cool. I mean, I've talked about this before on previous podcasts. It's like social media is truly allowing people to live vicariously through what other people do. And I think actually specifically in in helicopter aviation and aviation in in total as well, that there's a, there's a lack of interests from young people wanting to get into aviation. 
Um, and I don't know if it's a culprit of they, they don't think they can do it. It's, it's, Hey, you have to go to the military or whatever, you know, people just might not know that it's even possible. And now with like Instagram, you know, you could be a 13 year old kid watching you do super amazing utility stuff and then have access to that person, send them yeah. a message and be like, Hey, how did you do this? You yeah. know, like that's, that's so valuable. I think for hopefully keeping people, uh, interested in engaging in aviation on all sides. I mean, there's the girl that does the how-to helicopter. Uh, she's like the maintenance side. And yeah. She's like, you know, her her videos are just doing maintenance on helicopters. She has a crap ton of followers. And I'm sure people are getting involved in the maintenance side of the house just because of her. Yep. You know, and so like that's an incredible part of social media and something I'm excited about with social media. And I'm hoping with the podcast as well, I hope that we can help kind of push people along to wanting to get into this industry. Cause it's truly an amazing industry to be in. And when you're doing what you're doing, it's super awesome. So, uh, Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show an hour, just like that. It always goes by fast when you're talking about cool stuff. Again, thanks to our partners at bell helicopter and Celicopter, And of course, vertical helicasts say it, they'll say it again, go check it out. The hangar Z with John gray, uh, kind of more law enforcement specific. So, uh, kind of what we were talking about earlier in today's podcast. And then the real rescue with Jason Quinn. He was a Coast Guard swimmer and he kind of, he has people on that, uh, you know, have similar job experiences doing that kind of crazy stuff. So it's a great platform. Consume all your helicopter specific podcast content. Uh, again, Brad, thank you for joining the podcast today.